Father, as we look in your word this morning, help us to remember uh, what the most important things in life really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Kathy, my wife has a plaque at home that says, uh, keep the main thing, the main thing. Uh, In other words, don't major on the minors, major on the majors. I want you to think about that. I'm going to read through 1 Kings 6 this morning. It's a lengthy passage, 38 verses, so bear with me. You can go through it in your own Bible if you've got it. If not, bear with me. This is a description of the building of the temple. And if you remember in Kings up to this point, Solomon has assembled the team from Hiram and from Tyre. He's got the building process and materials going, and this now describes the building that's being constructed, the temple there in Jerusalem, 1 Kings 6. It came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was, and excuse me, I've inserted my own feet measurements in here. These are approximates, 90 feet, its length, its width, 30 feet, its height, 45 feet. The porch in front of the nave of the house, that is the main portion of the temple, was 30 feet corresponding to the width of the house. Its depth along the front of the house was 15 feet. Try and picture this in your mind. This is a little rough when you're reading a description of something that's physical that you would ideally be seeing. Okay, also he made windows with artistic frames. This We really don't know what this means. It could mean lattice work, or it could also mean the kind of windows you see in castles that have narrow outside apertures, and then they get wider as they come in to maximize light. Against the wall of the house, he built stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. Thus, he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was seven and a half feet. The middle was nine feet and the third, ten and a half feet. For on the outside, he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. The doorway for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house. This is right as you would face out of the temple, and uh, the temple faces east. They would go up by winding stairs or ladders, the Hebrew term is unclear, to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the house and finished it. He covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. He also built the stories against the whole house, each seven and a half feet, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. I don't know if you can see this in your mind's eye, but you've got essentially a big rectangle, and it's got dormers that come off on both of the long sides, and those dormers are three stories tall. Those are storage areas on each side of the tall middle portion of the temple. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, Then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Then he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the ceiling, he overlaid the walls on the inside with wood, and he overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 
30 feet on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them for it on the inside as an inner sanctuary, even the most holy place. This is the back of the temple. This is what we typically call the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. The house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 60 feet long. This we would typically call the holy place. This would be where the showbread and the incense was located. There was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone seen. So the stone structure has now been covered inside with all woodwork carved. The inner sanctuary was, let's see if I've got this right, 30 feet, uh, 30 feet, and 30 feet. That is, the Holy of Holies is square. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar, this would be the altar of incense in the holy place right in front of the Holy of Holies. By the way, I'll probably mention this again, but this is hard to just go through a passage that's describing a building. And I've got a CD from one of the leading scholars on the Temple Mount, and we'll look at, uh, we'll look at slides of this later. And there's actually a couple more chapters to come that describe the building itself. It's a little hard to view. So the slides that we've got are of a model built to scale about basically as the artist understands these dimensions and everything to look. And it's helpful to see the model, but we'll do that later. We won't focus on that today, but hopefully in your mind you can gain a little bit of perspective of what we're talking about here. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. So it was stone, then boards carved, and then gold overlaid on that. And he drew chains across uh, chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Also, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 15 feet high. Most people don't think about this related to the temple, and this wouldn't have been true related to the second temple, Herod's temple, but these would have been very, very impressive indeed in the temple. These are uh, carved images of angelic... um, composite creatures that stood 15 feet tall each and the two of these as you'll see here are located in the holy of holies with their their wings over the ark of the covenant uh five or excuse me seven and a half feet was the one wing of the cherub and seven and a half feet the other wing of the cherub from the end of one wing to the end of the other 15 feet the other cherub was 15 feet both the cherubim were of the same measure and the same form The height of the one cherub, 15 feet, so was the other. He placed the cherubim in the midst of the inner house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out, so that the wing of one was touching the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall. So their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. You can imagine if you went into the temple, when it's finished, everything you see is gold. There's no wood, there's no stone visible, everything is gold. Then he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. He overlaid the floor of the house with gold, inner and outer, meaning the holy place and the holy of holies. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood, the lintel, and five-sided doorposts. By the way, typically if we think of the temple, we're thinking of the second temple, and so we think of curtains. But in Solomon's temple, there were no curtains. There were doors. There were interior doors at the Holy of Holies and exterior doors at the front of the temple. 
He made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave, the holy place, four-sided doorposts of olive wood and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door turned on pivots, and the two leaves of the other door turned on pivots. He carved on it cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the engraved work. He built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Long chapter. Sorry to almost bore you with this, but I think it's important. If you noticed reading through this, the chapter breaks down into three sections. Verses 1 through 10 talked about the structure itself, sort of the outward dimensions and the inward dimensions, the, the gross, as it were, description of the temple building, what it looked like and how big it was. Then in verses 14 through 38, it talked about the interior of the temple, that is the planks, everything covered with gold, the cherubim, etc. As I said earlier, we'll look actually at the temple more uh, in depth, physically what that looked like and maybe some of the implications related to that uh, later. But what I want to focus on this morning is the center of the chapter, the center, uh, I think, theologically of the passage this morning, which is verses 11 through 13. It's odd. And you read through this chapter, and it's giving the physical description of a temple, of a building. And in the middle of this, it throws these three verses. They're out of place as far as the description of the temple goes. And so I ask myself, gee, why is that? Why are these verses here in the middle of the description of the temple? Let me reread those verses. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building... If you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. We'll walk through this slowly a little bit. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. We don't know what this looks like. I don't think this was a physical appearance because later in chapter 9, it will say God appeared to Solomon a second time. Remember, he appeared in chapter 3 in a dream, and Solomon knows God has appeared and spoken to him. This could have been a prophet that came to him and spoke. It could have been an impression Solomon had. We don't know. It doesn't describe it specifically, but it does not appear to be an appearance like the other two occasions, uh, one in chapter 3 and one in chapter 9, related to Solomon. So however it came, though, God, in the midst of this building process and then in the scriptures, in the midst of this description, he throws in these verses to King Solomon. We'll look at this two portions. The first is the if then. Did you notice that? In verse 12, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments. That's a big if. That little two-letter word is a very big word. If you will do these three things, God says, then God will do three things, carry out his word with Solomon, and I'll mention what that is here in just a second, dwell among the sons of Israel, and he won't forsake his people, Israel. This is a conditional promise. It is a conditional agreement between God and Solomon. And that little if word is a big, big deal. A big deal indeed. 
when he says, if you will do these three things, walk in God's statutes, execute his ordinances, and keep his commandments, the first thing he says God would do is to keep his word with Solomon. Um, if you remember, both in Chronicles and Second Kings, God had appeared to Solomon's dad, David, and he said, I'm going to set one of your sons on the throne, and he'll build my temple, and he'll sit on this same throne, your throne, your descendant, and he'll reign over Israel. And in fact, it says in one passage, he'll reign over a, a kingdom that won't end. So you have this promise to David. And that's in part what God is talking to Solomon here about. And in fact, you know, if you've read the rest of the story, because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, Solomon unfortunately does not fulfill the conditional portion, his portion of this agreement. And so the kingdom is ripped from his son, Rehoboam. Solomon does not have a son, like Solomon himself did, from his father, who assumes the role of all of Israel. Rehoboam loses the ten northern tribes. The conditional promise was not kept, and so there was a price to pay. The promise had been that if Solomon and if his sons would do these things, that is, faithfully execute God's word, walk with God, be faithful, and obey his commands, that there would always be one of David's descendants sitting on the throne in Israel. And of course, you know, from further history in the Old Testament, that doesn't happen. Not only does Rehoboam lose the ten northern tribes, the biggest part of the kingdom, but of course Israel later is taken into captivity. That There's no king at all sitting in Israel for a long period of time. So this was a conditional promise. And by the way, if you remember just back a chapter or two when Solomon was talking with Hiram, they had a conditional promise also, or a conditional agreement, an arrangement. Back then, Hiram said, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. Solomon, if you'll give us grain and oil, we'll give you timber and expertise. One was conditioned upon the other. Conditional, very important conditional promise. So in the middle of the work, of building the temple, and in the middle of the description of the temple itself, God throws in this conditional arrangement he had with King Solomon. And I ask myself, gosh, why is that? Why is that? It's easy at times, and I think that's what's going on here, it's easy at times to get lost in the details of life and forget what the real issues are for God. And Solomon's in the midst of a big building program here. And there's lots of details to oversee. And you remember the whole nation is at work building this. If you remember, he's conscripted labor, 30,000, and he's recruited 70,000 non-Jewish laborers as well. He's got the workers in from Tyre. He's got the stone and the lumber coming in. And in the midst of this huge project, God throws this reminder to King Solomon. The reminder is, remember that if you'll do these things, then I'll do these things. Don't let the details that you're in the midst of confuse you about what's really important. If you'll walk in my ways, if you'll be like David your father was, if you'll be faithful, be a man after my own heart, then I'll keep those promises I made, but they're conditional. They're conditional. Another one of those promises to Solomon was, we talked about this in chapter 3, he'd have a long life. Solomon's failure actually comes in the end of his life. God did bless him with a long life because his obedience uh, was consistent until towards the end of his life. So God says, he says to Solomon in the midst of the process, he says, remember this, 
My priority for you is that you remain faithful, that you remain faithful to me. If you do that, we're good to go, and I'm free to bless you. Well, consider again where we're at when God says this. What's Solomon up to when this word comes to him? Well, he's building God's house. He's building God's house. And what's the point of the work? It's that God would have a meeting place with Israel. God will have a meeting place with Israel. Uh, you remember that Israel at this time, until the temple's built, they've got the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember when they came out of Egypt, they had a tent set, uh, set up or situation. It was called the tabernacle. The temple's about twice the size of the tabernacle. But in that tent setting, God had met with Israel in the wilderness. And that was his goal all along, was that he would walk with them. In fact, he says in Leviticus, if you'll obey me, I'll walk in your midst. You'll be my people, I'll be your God. That was his, God's desire all along. In fact, it's interesting, if you go back to Genesis, that's exactly the picture you see in Eden before the fall. What is it? Well, Adam and Eve are in this perfect environment, and what do they do? Well, God comes into the garden and walks with them. And arguably, theologically, in the scriptures from Old Testament through New, from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is the story of God creating man for fellowship and then redeeming man for fellowship so that we start in the Garden of Eden with God walking with man, and then we end in Revelation 22 with man living with God, walking with God in the New Jerusalem. So God's theme all along is that he wants to live with us. And Solomon's in the midst of this building program where they're erecting this very fantastic, very impressive building, very costly, very difficult. And I think God's saying to him here, remember that my goal is to live with you. In other words, the building's not the thing. The building becomes a convenient spot for God to meet with Israel. But his promise was that he would not forsake them, that he would live or dwell among them if they'd be obedient. So he reminds Solomon in the midst of the building program, the temple is not the thing. The building that he's about, it's not the goal. God dwelling in their midst, that's the goal. And I think this is thrown into the middle of the description because it's a reminder to us and it's a reminder to Solomon that it's easy to forget what the main point is in the flurry of the details that go around them. And God says to Solomon, it's a little warm in here, isn't it, Terry? We turned the air conditioner on for you, but it's not working. Um, God wants to dwell with us. And in Solomon's day, the temple was being built as a meeting place for God and Israel. That was the point. So if you remember... King David had actually proposed building this temple and David had set aside, he'd taken years to set aside gold and silver and bronze and jewels. In fact, the plan that Solomon follows, David had set up as well. So David spent all this time and energy getting ready to build a temple and then Solomon inherits that commission and now he's in the midst of it and they're spending all this time and energy and there's details And in the middle of it, God says, don't forget what the priority is. The priority is me. It's not the building. It's not the building. 
as you and I go through life, I'm sure you know this, you might feel like God wants you to do a particular thing, and so you start that, you go to work, you get married, I don't know, you go to school, it could be 101 things. And as you're going along doing the things you think God wants you to do, somewhere along the line you you figure out that you've lost your way. You forget why you're doing what you're doing. Or you forget what the main goal was. You lose your first love. You lose your passion for what you're doing because you forget why you're doing it. You forget what the major thing is that you need to major on. I find it interesting when Jesus comes later to the temple that was erected in his day, here's the Lord of the law coming into the temple. And what do those who oversee the temple do? They close the door on him, don't they? They reject him. Jesus, the Lord creator, comes to his temple, his little footstool on earth, and the leaders of the temple boot him out. Did, I think they got something confused. You know, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, Jesus commends them. In fact, if you read the description of the church, it's, uh, it's a church that any of us would be glad to be associated with. He says they have doctrinal purity. They oppose those who bring up false teachings. It says that they persevere. They're hardworking. It says they've held on to Christ's name. But then at the end, he says, but this one thing, this one problem you've got, this one axe I have to grind with you is... You've lost your first love. I think like Solomon, Ephesus, in the midst of building the church, doing what God's commanded them to do, build the church, somewhere along the way they lose their focus. And the work or the perseverance becomes more important or partially occludes their view of Christ himself. And so to this church that otherwise sounds like everything's great, Jesus says... Repent, repent, restore your first love. Or he says, I'll take your candle from you. I'll take your testimony away. You've got everything else right, but if you failed in this one thing, which is your love for me, first love, love for Christ, love for God, then your testimony's gone. And God seems to be saying to Solomon, Solomon, if you get everything right on the dimensions, if everything's covered with gold, the ark's there and everything looks good on the outside, but you've forgotten me, You've missed the whole deal. You've blown it. You've lost your first love. I'm going to close with uh, uh, not a story, but another building, actually. Um, If you go online or if you look in encyclopedias, you can see a picture of the Taj Mahal. This was built in 1630 to 1653. It took 23 years to build Now, listen to the dimensions on this. You've heard the dimensions a little bit on the temple in Jerusalem. The Taj Mahal, 200 feet tall, so much taller than the temple. Um, It has four minarets around the corners, 138 feet tall apiece. It's about 190 feet square, much bigger than the temple, much more complex than the temple if you've seen its uh, dome, which are difficult to construct, and it's multifaceted in the facades around the sides and on the roof. Larger than the temple, more ornate than the temple, if not in the gold work in it, in the mosaics that are uh, installed all around this. And uh, perhaps arguably more impressive and more expensive than the temple Solomon built in Jerusalem. The Taj Mahal still stands today. You could go there and see it if you wanted to. Now, I grew up as a kid. 
I knew the Taj Mahal by name. I knew what it looked like from pictures. But I never knew what it was built for. How many here know why it was built? A few. Okay, yeah. What is the Taj Mahal? It's a tomb. It's a tomb, isn't it? It's a crypt. It's like a pyramid in Egypt. And the, let's see, the emperor, emperor's the wrong word, the Shah Mahal built it for his second wife, Mantaz Mahal, who mothered 14 of his children. She died, and he wanted to do something for her that would make her memory last forever. So he took 23 years to construct this incredible building for her resting place so that she would not be forgotten. Now, there's a story told, and this is where I don't know if, if this goes from reality to myth or not. The story's told that towards the waning days of the construction of the building, there was a box that was in the way of the builders, and they weren't sure what it was, and it was covered with debris, and they went to move it, and they found out that it was the coffin of the queen. That is, in the construction, in the 23-year construction of the temple, they forgot why they were doing what they were doing. This whole magnificent edifice, just like the pyramids, this vast, incredible building structure was there for only one reason, to house one body. But in the midst, in the details of putting up the building, they forgot why they were doing what they were doing. You know, it's not hard for me to bring this home as far as application in my life, and I hope it isn't for yours either. If you're a Christian... Your mandate is, just like Solomon's, is to walk with God. It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's to be in relationship with Him. You and I, at times, we take on responsibilities that we think God has given us. And so we get about the work of what we think God has commissioned us with. But you know, if you find yourself... uh, burning out or wearing down or feeling a little distant from the Lord, you need to ask yourself, as I do, uh, am I majoring on the majors? That is, am I like Solomon? Am I remembering that God's calling me to faithfulness? And he's calling me basically to maintain my relationship with him in a way that he's free to bless me with, with his own presence. We've talked about this before, but you know the temple today is us. It's not a building. It's not a structure. It's people. And so the Spirit of God lives in individual Christians, and the Spirit of God gathers when Christians gather together to Christ's name. So he's not concerned with magnificent edifices. I don't know if you guys have read in the news recently, a church in Houston bought the old... I'm going to forget the name of it. The Houston Rockets... Is that it, Sean? I don't think it's the Astrodome. Anyway, it seats 16,000 people. They opened this weekend, matter of fact. This weekend was their opening. Now, <clears throat> this thing, it's got waterfalls in it, and it's got uh, state-of-the-art light and theater, and, and, and I'm not even talking any of this down, guys. But you could go in. These are Christians. It's a church. Now, you could go in there, and you could see everything but Christ. That's possible. In other words, the building's not the deal. And in the West, we have magnificent church buildings in Western Europe, essentially. But you know, lots of them, they're just tombs today. 
You know, you go to St. Paul's in London. Why? You go to look at the tombs. I don't know that <clears throat> you go there for the church services anymore. Are we losing our perspective along the way while we're working, doing good things, doing necessary things sometimes, but are we losing our perspective on what God's really called us to? He's really called us to faithfulness. And guys, I'm not saying faithfulness that we keep little laws and rules. When we're faithful, when we're avoiding things that we should avoid and doing things we should do, God's free to bless us with his presence the way he wants to. So I wonder, and I ask myself, and you can ask yourself this morning, have I lost my first love along the way of duty? Or am I minoring, or am I majoring on the minors? Or am I keeping the main thing the main thing? God's concerned in the end with our relationship with us. And you know, in the scripture, some people say they wish they knew more about heaven. They wish they knew more about what heaven would look like and how big it is. You know, there's some descriptions in Revelation, but I'm convinced that the reason God doesn't tell us more is because it's not important. That is, we go to heaven to be with a person. It would be like going to the temple but not wanting to see and know everything about the temple, but not going to see God. When we go to heaven, it's to see God. It's not to see the place. He wants us, his, his desire all along, from creation and then in redemption, it's to redeem people to himself for fellowship. So ask yourself this morning, do an inventory related to what you're doing or what you're not doing. Am I keeping the main thing, that is love for God, walking with him, being faithful to him, so he's free to bless me and interact with me and dwell with me the way he wants to? Or am I making the minor things? Am I losing God in the details of the building process? Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by how easy it is to uh, lose sight of you. even when I think I'm serving you. Or Lord, I think of Mary and Martha, two gals, both of whom knew you and loved you, and one running ragged, Lord, doing things that are worthwhile and appreciated by others, but losing sight of you. I pray, Lord, somehow amidst the necessary work and toil that you help us keep you foremost in our minds. Lord, that we don't lose perspective, that it's not about details per se it's about you it's about knowing you it's about a relationship with you god in heaven we're prone to wander we're prone to idols we're prone to lose you in the details of life and i pray when we are that you'd tap us on the shoulder that you'd speak in our ear as you did solomon remind us that you're after our hearts and that the place you live today in us and in the church, Lord, is the place you love to dwell, love to meet with us. Help us not to put up any impediment, Lord, between us and you, anything that prevents you from fellowshipping with us, speaking to us, Lord, us loving you and being loved by you as you desire. Thanks for redemption. Thanks that we are your temple today, Lord. We look forward with Paul to the day that we see you face to face and are transformed into your likeness, and live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.